Hello, and welcome to The Camera Report, brought to you by WaterfootFilms.com. I'm your host, Sean Malone, and this month's episode features an interview with Craig McCall, an award-winning director and documentary filmmaker whose most recent film, Cameraman, The Life and Work of Jack Cardiff, chronicles the long and illustrious career of the late British cinematographer. Jack Cardiff shot some of cinema's most valued treasures, including films like Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes, and The African Queen, in a career in movies that spanned over 80 years. Craig McCall had the good fortune of knowing Jack in his later years, and after meeting Jack and forming a sincere admiration for him, Craig took on what would become a 13-year effort to chronicle Jack's professional life on film. He joins me today from his home in London, England. Craig, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about Jack and this wonderful film. Thank you, Sean. I want to start off by saying that this film is very inspiring, Craig. There aren't really a lot of cinematography documentaries out there, and I think we need more like this. There's only a couple. I think when I started, the only one, the, my main inspiration was a, an American production called Visions of Light, but it was a kind of compendium of many cinematographers who were working in the United States, and that came out about 1992, and I always remember it was shot on high definition, and, and which was very rare in those days, and um, that, was, that was a big inspiration. I think in the last couple of years, there's a couple more out there. There's one on Haskell Wexler, made by his son, and one on Nick Fist, made by his son also. You mentioned Visions of Light, and this is kind of something that always comes up in the subtext of a lot of interviews I do. I'd like to ask you, how did Visions of Light inspire you, not only to make this film, but just in general as a filmmaker? I think because I always saw myself behind the camera, and I went to I ended up going to film school in England. I nearly studied the United States, but um, ended up doing so in the UK, in England. And when I saw Visions of Light, I don't know, I really admired cameramen. I liked them. And I always remember one particular sequence with William Fraker, who shot Rosemary's Baby for Polanski. And he, he had this gray beard, and he was telling this amazing story about Polanski coming in, and he, he'd framed up the shot, and he'd put, um, I think it was Cassavetes, through the doorway, and, and Polanski said, Billy, Billy, what are you doing? And he moves it so that he cuts cuts the actor, I think it's Cassavetes, in half. And Bill Frick was going, I wonder why he's doing that. And then when he sat in the audience, the whole audience turned their heads as if they were trying to see through the door to the actor. And it was about perception and, and how, as a cameraman, you would put perception on the screen, which is actually emotion. So that story and other ones were just very, very inspiring to me. And then, you know, when you see the images from films like Days of Heaven that Nestor Mendros shot, who wrote a great book that really inspired me, I don't know, that was, that was the world I, would like, I wanted to get closer to. And um, I guess it started, it was, in, it was planted and the seeds were planted in my head. And when I crossed paths with Jack, I guess, I felt that that was something. You need to be very passionate about doing something like that. And when I crossed paths with Jack, I thought, I'd like to tell his story. And that leads me into my next question, which you talked about Visions of Light. You talked about meeting Jack. Could you talk more in detail about the genesis of this project? Like a lot of film school graduates, and I became a director when I was at film school, um, although I still operate camera quite a lot. Um, It's a bit of an odd one, but people like my figures do. Um, I, I, I was working in London um, in e, for EMI, not full-time. We were all freelancers. But at that time, in the early 90s, they had a whole floor which dealt with everything that was filmed, everything from Pink Floyd concerts to small videos. 
And uh, I got my break there shooting videos, and it was very exciting. I'd be on stage with a Super 8 camera, and then I'd be somewhere else doing a bit of editing. So I learned a lot very rapidly. And one day, I was sitting in the open plan office, and there was this older gentleman sitting next to me. And I had a small 16-millimeter hand crank camera. It's called a Bolex. And Jack was looking at it. We were chatting. And... Um, he made me a cup of tea, and, and someone said to me, do you know who that is? And I said, no, and he said, well, it's Jack Cardiff. And I knew the name, and um, the next day he was back in, and the reason he was in was that he'd been asked to make a 60-minute version of Vivaldi's, Vivaldi's Four Seasons um, for Japan. And Jack, to EMI's surprise, Jack jumped at it because he liked directing. He hadn't directed in years. But, but he was waiting for the budget, and he'd opened a newspaper that week, and it had snowed in Venice, Italy, which is a very rare thing for, for Venice to be covered in snow. And Jack, being also a consummate painter and having a great knowledge of painting, self-taught, but great knowledge, so wanted to capture this image, but he was waiting for the money. So he didn't wait. He, got, he actually drove to Venice with a couple of people, I think his son, Mason included, and took the hand-cranked camera because it didn't cost much money just to take that camera and a couple of rolls of film and got the images because this, you know, it was going to melt in a couple of days. And I just thought this is the enthusiasm of a film school graduate. It's like someone who's 21 or 22 doing things like this, jumping in a car and capturing things on hand-cranked cameras. But he's in his 80s and he'd won every accolade ever. And so I guess that put the hook in me. He's also a very funny guy. And um, he'd written bits of a manuscript that would later become his, his autobiography. And that was the beginning. And, about, and I couldn't get it out of my head. And a few years later, I'd always made independent documentaries. I approached him, and a couple of people had approached him to make documentaries on his life. But I shot a pilot, and that was the beginning. And the pilot was actually filmed in 1997. Um, I couldn't get any takers, um, so I ended up doing a very independent route. So a couple of years later, I just started filming. Because the clock was ticking, um, Jack and his peer group were getting on. And although Jack, you know, lived um, for years later until 2008, most of the filming I did was from about 98 to 2001. And I'm glad because in the subsequent years, many of the people I put on camera, John Mills, um, British actor, Kim Hunter, the American actress, many, many of them um, unfortunately passed away. So I got them in the can. But... The main reason it took so long to come out from filming it to actually releasing the movie is the fact that Jack worked on over 100 movies and so many of the ones I wanted to show were big studio pictures and you either need a lot of money or, in my case, time and patience to, to get the clips. <laughs> I read also that you were wanting to wait for restored versions of the films to come out. Is that right? Well, when I began in the 90s, we were looking at I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but to explain, it, it would be a photochemical process. You would get clips from films and you would make copies from film to film, pieces of film duped onto other pieces of film. The world changed in those 10 years. And one of the great things is, is that several of the films, particularly the Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, um, have been restored, but the world had changed. So when the Red Shoes, which is probably one of Jack's most famous films, one of the three he did with Michael Powell and Emmett Pressburger. It was kind of helmed by Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoenmacher, although many other people contributed to it, UCLA and other, others. There was many, many people involved. And probably one of the most beautiful restorations of a technical film in the world. Um, the world, the, technically, when that was done a few years ago, um, as much as Scorsese and Thelma Schoenmacher were very passionate towards 
the integrity of photochemical process, the reality was it would be put on digitally. And so one of the great things, if I'd finished my film in the early 2000s, I would probably be of relegated to just standard def copies from TV companies or something like that. One of the bonuses of spending all these years is if you go and see my film in the cinema or get the Blu-ray, you will be watching, or the DVD, these pristine restored clips. Not all the films, I couldn't do them all. <laughs> I'm, I'm just a small, small outfit in the UK. But it was very important to me that particularly the Powell Pressburger ones that I knew were out there. And of course, because Samashun Mark and Mark Scorsese and other people who are contributors to the film and interviewees, I have a kind of relationship with them and I, I knew it was very important and they would all agree to get the clips in. And so it was brilliant that we could actually show it because when you actually watch what Jack did on The Red Shoes or Black Narcissus or A Matter of Life and Death or any of these seminal movies, it is stunning. I mean, one of the things that comes out mentioned by Scorsese is like color is was the emo one of the emotions of the picture. The actual colors affects you. Um, some people might think that's going a bit too far, but if you sit and watch the restored version of The Red Shoes, which has been run in tandem with Cameraman in a lot of places around the world, including the United States and many of the cities, it is stunning. I mean, and I've sat and watched it with teenagers and people who remember it when it came out in the 40s, and it's a very, it's, it's a very emotional film. And Jack's work on it, for it to make sense in the, in the, in the best possible way, is, is, is to watch the restored version, you know. Because unfortunately, for a couple decades, there just wasn't the intent or resources to have these things so when you see it now it's like watching it when it was first released yeah and you hit on something too that i noticed which is it's almost like jack cardiff's work was foreshadowing the trends of movie photography to come because when you look at his stuff it it doesn't feel dated it it has like a timeless or even modern quality yeah, I think, I mean, you know, as I say, I was listening to one of your other podcasts and um, we were talking about painting. Jack, Jack is self-taught and it's an intuitive side that I think all, all cinematographers, I think, smuggle something onto the screen. As long as you can do it, if you can do it quickly and you can do it on your budget, people accept it. And smart directors or, or directors who really give people their heads, who are obviously probably the best directors, Michael Powell, Alfred Hitchcock, John Huston, um, they allow him to do it. Not always, but, but there's a middle ground where Jack would, your point about it being timeless, I think it's to do with the fact that it was natural. And it, it's like they're not using a style that is of the time. So his stuff, so they don't use any ephemeral motivation because they wanted to make look look like that period of that time. Sometimes that can be fun or a pastiche, but... I think there was a clarity in Jack's work that stands the test of time. And also when he looks at faces, I think at his core, he had a way of lighting them. Of course, when he was shooting actresses like Marla Monroe or Sophia Loren, there was a pressure because they had to look good. That was, the, that was the nature of the cinematography in that time. But I think at the same time, there was a clarity in what he did. And, and, and that stands up. And I think it, the, for me, the best way to explain it is you feel closer to the scene. You actually feel a little bit closer that you're in that ballet in the red shoes or in that bar in the barefoot contessa or, or, you know, you felt like you were next to Humphrey Bogart dragging a boat through the Belgian Congo. You talk about his work being, how did you term it? The clarity of his work? Well, yeah, I think the clarity of the simplicity of the light, especially on people. I think when he was doing other scenes, he maybe did other things, but 
I think at his core, he knew what he wanted to do every time he, he shot certain faces. But like I say, because he filmed for so many decades, you know, the, the, as, as it, that was why it was important for me in the film to ask him about doing the Rambo films with, with Sylvester Stallone. And he said, he was quite straight up. He's going, well, we had to get him tough. We got toughness out of it. But I still think there's a clarity in the shots. I'm not saying I want to hold up every shot in Rambo um, compared to the Red Shoes because the Red Shoes was was much more of a kind of inside a dancer's head. But I still think there's a lot of nice looking shots in the Rambo pictures. And, and actually some of his lateral, lateral films, um, when he returns to cinematography, like Death on the Nile and that, I think quite painterly and, and very beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about his work as a director and that departure from his uh, career as a cinematographer for that short time? Absolutely. I don't dwell upon it too much in, in the documentary, and some people kind of think that I'm glossing over, but the point is Jack had a 90-year career, and he directed about just over a dozen films, I think 13, 13 and a half. His first film with Errol Flynn was an aborted um, version of William Tell, uh, which a lot of kind of uh, cineast loves the stories of, but he did 12 films. The one he was most proud of that he always said was Sons and Lovers, his adaptation of D.H. Lawrence, which he was actually nominated for an Oscar and was up against Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder won that year, I think, for The Apartment. And Jack was very proud of that. I think that was his um, the highlight. But um, he, did, he, he, he was very adventurous. He, he tried... Um, Girl on the Most Motorcycle is a bit of a cult classic now, um, with Marianne Faithful and Alan DeLong. It's based on a book. It maybe suffered from um, people kind of criticizing it at the time. But Jack liked taking risks. And sometimes, you know, with hindsight, people can snigger at them or look down at them. But he was trying to, I mean, he even worked on a film, Sense of a Mystery, which was supposed to be the first smell vision But some entrepreneur in the States tipped him to the post. So Jack was very attracted to innovation. Jack was very positive. He was never negative. He um, only did one shoot on H high definition for Francis Ford Coppola's nephew, Christopher Coppola. He did a film and he went over and he, he just went over to Hollywood and did a dream sequence. And he loved having the high definition monitor when he was shooting it. So Jack was very positive. He, when, when, when people asked him, as he says in the documentary, you know, oh, they don't make films like those old Technicolor films. Jack's like, well, no, he thinks the standard of photography has gotten better and better. He's very progressive and open-minded and very much applauded new and young cinematographers. And he always mentioned, I remember him mentioning Billy Elliot when, when I was sitting with him 10 or 12 years ago. Someone said, what was the film you've seen recently? And I'm just saying that now because Jack's not around. And he just said, because it looked natural. He didn't notice the light lighting. He didn't heritage the past, let's put it that way. The archive material in your film is amazing because of Jack, but the original material also looks really good, and I wanted to ask you, was there any added pressure on you and your cameraman to really match the, or if not match, then at least um, complement the aesthetic of Jack's work and your work? No, I think what I did, there's there's a pragmatic side. I basically used all the cameramen who'd worked for me because I didn't really pay any of them. They all worked for free, which is amazing. Every cameraman on there pretty much worked for free, and a lot of the people worked on the film for free, even though it still cost a lot of money to make. So... And I like the fact, because it's a documentary, I was quite happy to make people aware of, I didn't want to like try and match what we were doing in Pinewood with Jack and Freddie Francis with what we were doing in Los Angeles with Kirk Douglas. I went with it so that you'd be aware of each one. So you'd be aware of each physical, geographical space? Well, they were all different cinematographers, and you just had to 
get on with it. I mean, in that way, except for the fact that I made a set of rules before I made this. And one was at that time in the 90s, so many films about filmmaking or just documentaries, people would get a star celebrity for 15, 20 minutes in a hotel room, which usually meant fairly basic lighting or soft lighting because you're just worried. And they're usually on a slightly wide lens. So they look very similar. And someone said to me once, make sure your interview with them never looks like anybody else's. So if you look at the Scorsese interview, I put a light in his lap. It looks very odd. Now, maybe I went too far. I don't know. But I wanted to make it distinct. And the other point is, because I was shooting on film, I wanted to use the whole length of the lens. And so I tried to get as large rooms as possible so that there was depth of field. And, and it didn't look like quite a lot of the, the type of material that you were seeing day in, day out on, on documentaries. Now, a couple of times I had no choice because the rooms I was in. But with Lauren Bacall, we were in, I think, the Bel Air Hotel or something, and we, we got a huge suite. And so, you know, I was actually quite far from her when I shot the interview. And I wanted to – some people could say, oh, you wouldn't notice, but I think you do. You get a, it's a kind of tactile feel that you know it's being done that way. I mean, one of the funny anecdotes from that is that when we were in Kirk Douglas's house, he, he has a lovely collection of um, paintings and uh, of impressionist painters and vases and objets d'art. And we were setting up, and I think I moved a Renoir, some very, very precious painting or something, and he came in and asked who moved it. And I had to confess that it was myself. And I said, but I'm sorry, Mr. Douglas, we need to put the camera quite far away. And I explained what we were doing. And he was fine with it. Because he, because uh, there was a reason for it. <laughs> but it was a bit terrifying at the time. This is just a personal curiosity, but as I watched the Scorsese interview, and also there's a film critic you interview uh, in a similar fashion. W- was anybody ever fidgety about that type of lighting or um, unsure about no, it? No, with Scorsese it was interesting. I learned a trick from shooting heads of companies and executives where I put a very simple lighting setup. If somebody walks in is not in a very good mood, Scorsese actually turned out to be in an extraordinarily good mood. Um, he'd been on holiday for two weeks. And so instead of it being 15 minutes, we went on for an hour. It was fantastic. He was just in the best place. But what I do is I had a simple lighting setup, and then I had a more intricate one. And I asked them, and you kind of can gauge if they come in the room and they're not in a good mood or a good mood. Um, also working in the, the music business with rock and roll and stars, you know, you sometimes just get people on the wrong day. And so I, you always have to get it in the can. And everybody was accommodating. Scorsese put up with the light shining up at him, which is maybe not even the most complimentary lighting, but I wanted to do it that way. One of the, the funniest story was actually with Jack. Um, when you ask about situations, I kind of like pushing the boat out and trying to be almost obvious. And so I shot him in front of a Lancaster bomber at a museum in in London called RAF Hendon. So the Lancaster's behind. And that was to obviously link it to a matter of life and death. But of course, he then goes off and talks about loads of other films in front of a Lancaster bomber, which is a bit odd. But anyway, I wanted to put a red light on because I knew in the back of my head or you, you think you're going to try and edit these sequences. I think you should try and have edited sequences in your head a little bit. And I was going to intercut it with the opening with David Niven and Kim Hunter talking with these, this red light going on. So my cameraman, Ian Salvage, had this red light going on and off as I was doing the interview. And it was the one day that Jack was not in a great mood. He was Jack was fantastic, and I was with him for months, you know, and actually knew him for years. Um, but um, it's something not to do with us or filming. He wasn't 
on his best form and um, he looked at the red light and he said to Ian, well, why is that on? And and he said, I, I think that's a silly idea. So Ian was a little bit intimidated, I think, and he went to uh, switch light off and I said, nope, leave it on. And Jack said, whatever you think. I mean, we proceeded. Anyway, when he eventually saw a cut of the film and saw it in a cut with the sequence of No Matter Life, I said, oh, I really like the way that you matched the two. <laughs> and I thought, I thought in my head, you see, Jack, the reason I stood up to you was the reason that you stood up to Michael Powell. Because I, you know, it, you, you don't stand down to someone. You, you have to stand up and stick to your ideas because their head's in a different space. And so, ironically, I'd learned the lesson from him by standing up to Michael Powell and people like that, that I stood up to him that day that, you know, his head was just in a different space. <laughs> Where can one see Jack's influence today on, on filmmakers and DPs, do you think, of this time? I mean, recently we've done some interviews with, Everybody from John Bailey, American cinematographer, Seamus McGarvey, the Irish uh, cinematographer. There's people who directly, I mean, the Powell Pressburger films, A Matter of Life and Death, which was released as uh, Stairway to Heaven in the United States, Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes, undoubtedly are a core of films that influence many DPs around the world. Some come to them decades after they were released or recently, and, and they still take recourse or look at those films for inspiration. And so I couldn't even name the number of cinematographers because they were such of a distinct period and, and, and what they did cre- creatively. And also the use of color. I would say that there's a kind of heightened realism sometimes in Jack's films, um, in The Red Shoes, where you just, just, Jack just pushes everything a little bit, but without, without detaching you from the situation so that you still feel that you're with the nuns. I mean, Blackness, this is a good example because... The whole film was shot in the studio in Pinewood Studios in London, England, and in the Himalayas. And so Jack was, he, he had an open palette. It was like, it's almost like he was a painter cinematographer. And some of his best work, I would say he was like that. He could draw upon all the things he was instinct, he, he loved instinctively from painting, from Vermeer, from Turner. What he loved about Turner was that Turner pushed everything. In the documentary, he shows a painting from Turner where a church steeple is completely burnt out, to use a filmmaking expression. He said, that's not real, but it works, because it works emotionally, because it, it sets up the thing. And so Jack copied that. And I think if he has a legacy, people can see where they can push things. Well, Matter of Life and Death was a film that influenced you at a pretty young age, right? That's the one that I remember seeing as a kid. And the whole court scenes in heaven really had a big impact to me because I hadn't seen anything like it. And I obviously, I saw it in television. Um, and so when I first met Jack, that was a film that I guess I could just talk about to him very emotionally. Um, I'd seen Black Narcissus, but I hadn't seen The Red Shoes when I met Jack, funnily enough. And so I, I had to come to that and um, watch it on Laserdisc for the first when I first saw it, and now I've seen it subsequently several times. I like the a, 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 a wide range of films. I mean, one of the films that Jack directed called um, The Mercenaries, I think in the United States, it's called Dark of the Sun. It's, just, it's a Tarantino favorite. He showed it, and he ran 10 films at a festival several years ago, and he said, this is one of my big secrets, and he ran that. Jack's made a lot of different films that I think are really quite interesting. I think if I was to lean people towards a film that they may not know, I would ask them to look at Barefoot Contessa with Humphrey Bogart. There's several of in, in that period that, that I really like. What was the most gratifying moment for you personally on this project? Or if, if not a moment, then what aspect was most gratifying for you? 
guess the most gratifying thing now is that it's out there, sitting with audiences at festivals and seeing from being in Shanghai to being in Colorado to being in Poland and that Jack's story is popular to a lot of people and it draws a lot of people to his films because there's nothing more disheartening. There's so many movies out there that I'm very fortunate the film has seemed to have caught people's imagination. It's been at over 30 film festivals so far. It's now out. It's been released in the United States, Canada, Britain, uh, coming into Germany, Brazil, Israel. It's been all over the world. And so I'm glad that people agree with me that Jack's story is worth um, worth the adventure, worth the 90 minutes of time in a, in a room watching the, the story of his life. And I understand that Jack himself was able to see a cut of the film before he passed away in 2009? Yeah, quite a few people asked me, um, did Jack see it? He didn't see the very final cut. We had a pretty close cut, I'd say about 90% of what you see on screen now. What was his reaction? Well, one of the more interesting things was we actually, the biggest audience he saw was, was with in Holland. We went to cinema there, and there was about 200 people there. And what you do is you sometimes screen what's called work in progress at festivals. So it's, it's, it's your edited cut. The sound isn't totally mixed and all the sound effects. But people get the gist of it. They like, they like kind of seeing behind the scenes. And so Jack sat there, and the opening bit where he says, he's dead, she's dead, she's dead, referring to all the actors and actresses on portraits on his kitchen wall, he was always a little bit unsure about that, that I kept that in. But when he saw the audience reaction, he was, he was very pleased. <laughs> Jack had a kind of a good sense of humor. Um, and so he, he, he enjoyed seeing that reaction. So, and also, for me personally, it kind of, uh, I felt good because his faith in me had been rewarded. He, he could trust me for taking risks in what I was doing with his story without in any way, you know, tarnishing it or being ridiculous with it or being gratuitous or sensationalist or something like that yeah i mean when i set out sean i this is my tenants one not a posthumous documentary jack was alive two no voiceover not that voiceover can't work really well but often it's a crutch and a substitute just because of the pressures of most broadcast television and they get very worried and they don't have time to, to keep making edits and three almost everybody in the film worked with jack Nothing against historians or film lecturers or anything like that. And I do have a couple of people, Ian Christie and George Turner, who, is, who didn't actually make a film with Jack, but everybody else did. All of them were actors, camera people, sound people. In fact, if you look at the film, and everybody I, I've interviewed, it's almost like a kind of reflection of a film crew or a film cast. You've got some actors who are household names, like Kirk Douglas, Charlton Heston, Lauren Bacall, some other actors that people may not know as well, like Kim Hunter, Kathleen Byron. And then you've got boom swingers, camera, editors. And so in a way, I wanted to reflect the whole plethora of people who make films. And because Jack had such a long career, it would be absent of me not to do so. I mean, the one thing about being an independent filmmaker and not being under the yoke of a broadcaster is I needed to do a few things that I could. Not using voiceover was one. It's not... It, Lots of people don't use it, but for this type of thing, you're often put under pressure to do so, to get from A to B to Z. My job was to interview enough people to tell the whole story. So every time I interviewed someone, whether it was Kirk Douglas or 
Peter Yates, who was a first AD, who went on to do great films like Bullet. And I, I would have two sets of questions. It would be the personal questions about when you're on set with Jack, X, Y, and Z. And then two, I would just ask them general, generic film questions. So I'd ask Lauren McCall about Technicolor, and I would ask Kirk Douglas about Black... You know, and so if you see my film, the, it is the story of Jack's life, but also it's the story of cinema from Western point of view, Anglo-American cinema, basically. And it struck me, too, the actors that you interviewed, people like Bacall and Charlton Heston, how really aware they were of their craft and, and of the craft of cinematography and the technology that was involved at that time. You see, to me, and I think this is, I did not want to make a film for filmmakers. That was another point. And the reason I say that is, you know, I get the odd little bit of criticism or snipes at me that I, it, there's not enough technical stuff in that. And I said, well, if you want technical stuff, subscribe to American Cinematographer and watch technical de- de- documentaries. I'm trying to, there's so few films that spotlight composers, art directors, editors, cameramen. There's very few. There's a great one I saw on there, uh, Morricone, a few years ago, but there's just not that many. And I, the other thing, and this is a pure filmmaking thing, whether you're doing drama or documentary, to assume that your audience will know or you assume that they, at the moment, if I assume that, that Jack's a great cameraman and didn't prove it, then I'm a useless filmmaker. I have to prove it. And I have to prove it to everybody, not just filmmakers, and assume that you've seen The Red Shoes or assume that you've seen African Queen. Yes, a lot of people love African Queen, but I still, you have to prove it. And that's what I did with Jack. But I wanted to do it in a way where I call it you smuggle things in. And so I'm, I'm really pleased that people laugh a lot because it is a combination of, you know, a little bit of technical, some anecdotes, some historical context. And, and but that's a reflection of what the film business is. No, I think it's, I mean, I think it's an extremely admirable goal that you had because, you know, most of the population out there doesn't even know what a cinematographer is or does. And to make a film that appeals to more people than just technicians, I think is really great. Sometimes I, I kind of go, oh dear, they've written Jack, one of the greatest cinematographers. There is no greatest. There are so many amazing cinematographers. And in, even in his peer group, even the people who are in the film, Christopher Chalice and Freddie Francis, both of whom are great cinematographers. I mean, I would, I, at my heart of hearts, when I first started, I thought, if I get this finished quickly, which it didn't, I will make a whole, I'll, be, I'll do Britain's visions of light, you know, with all of these people like Freddie Francis and Dougie Slocum and Ozzy Morris and all these amazing cinematographers who, who I had been able to meet, but it wasn't to be. Um, the, the, unfortunately, you know, unless you're a star or a director, it's very hard. As much as people say Jack's a great guy, you know, he, oh, he did so much for the film industry and all like that, it's very hard to to get backing and to do it in the scale I wanted to. So in the end, it was just on Jack. And, and I, to me, it was very important to tell a whole story, a rounded story, but a very accessible story. And Jack was there. Me, Jack's life is his life. But anybody who does a biography or documentary, you know, one of the things that really stuck in my head, I remember seeing documentaries on Orson Welles or Salvador Dali before and after they died. And I, I always had a slight discomfort of the ones after they died. Everything was neatly wrapped up and never seemed to have the essence of what made those artists what they were. And so I didn't want to do that. It's what I call heritaging the past. It's neat and tidy. And what I wanted to do was I wanted you to feel like you were talking to Jack 
but not having a lecture about Jack Cardiff. To me, you should be sitting at his table, having, you should feel like you're having a glass of red wine with him. In fact, I used to give him red wine, and that's how we do the different stories. I think after a couple glasses of red wine, you start talking more about Errol Flynn. <laughs> but that, 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 you know, I called it the, 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 the no wine stories, the one glass of wine stories, and then the two glasses of wine stories. And I think the Errol Flynn stuff came out after two glasses of red wine. Although he, he loved Errol Flynn. So to me, in essence, I always reminded myself of why did I make the film. The reason I made the film, quite simply, was I'd met Jack, and I kept telling people stories that Jack told me, and I went, if I had such a good time with Jack, wouldn't other people, and not just filmmakers? And that was what I reminded myself in when I was editing it and cutting it down and shooting it. Why am I making this? I'm not, I'm not really making a film about cinematography, although I am. I'm making a kind of Jack's life and such a big component with cinematography, but it's also a story of film history. And I wanted you to feel like you'd sat at a, had dinner with him, not gone to a lecture, which is unfortunately, which I think sometimes for better or worse documentaries, people are too, they're too caught up in, in trying to be, I don't know, prove a big point, you know, rather than, than, than capture the essence of somebody. I wanted to ask you, how, how did years of researching his films and also just knowing Jack make you a better filmmaker? I think it's a very good question again. I think I've got a huge, it's like having a huge shelf of stories that I can pull out going, well, well, Freddie Francis said when he was shooting Elephant Man, it would have been more interesting if he did it in color with David Lynch. You know, people just look at me as if I'm crazy. But, you know, Freddie Francis did say it would have been a bigger challenge. <laughs> he said black and white made it easier. So in one way, I've got a huge store of stories. Every time I'm in a situation, I can kind of draw upon them um, because of them. In another way, um, I guess the actual film has taught me it's, I had to tell a story, Jack's story. And, and again, when I sit with audiences, and I've been very fortunate, the film's gone to so many festivals in so many countries, that I really see what, how people react and what people laugh to. And um, storytelling is storytelling, and you've got to get to the point, and you've got to hold people's hand and take them on a journey. It doesn't matter what, it, what the journey is. And if you're going to scare them or get them to look at something in a new way, they need to feel comfortable with you as a filmmaker. So all my points of not voiceover, lighting people in a different way, as long as they add up into taking the journey with me, then, so I feel very, I feel that I've told the story very well, otherwise it wouldn't be out there to so many people, so I feel very confident now that I could take on uh, other stories, or maybe even stories that are, are harder for people to get across. I mean, in a very simplistic way, I was very pleased in a couple of cities because documentaries get small releases, but in cities like New York and Washington, a couple other places, Cameraman was held over for a second week simply because it made money. It did well. I did get some really good PR, by the way, from Washington Post and down at New York, but people enjoyed it. And that, to me, is, is gratifying because you've got to remember, I'm up there against all the movies, against the big blockbusters and everything like that. And people... You have to respect the fact that people come in, part with their twelve, fifteen, eighteen dollars, sit down, and you've asked for an hour and a half of their time, and you shouldn't disappoint them. I ask this question of all my guests, but for you, I'm going to ask it in a slightly different way. What's the best advice you can offer young or new filmmakers? And to add on to that, what advice do you think Jack would offer if he were here today? 
Okay, I'll answer mine first. The working title of my film for years and years and years until right close to the end was called Persistence of Vision. Be persistent. Just be persistent. Now, having spent 13 years, that might bring tears to people's eyes. <laughs> be persistent. You will win. Um, the world is uh, full of talented derelicts who just gave up. Be persistent. If you really want to... You may have to shuffle your priorities time and time again, but pe people will stick with you. Be persistent and talk to your inner voice. And, and I'll just add a caveat to that. Something that got cut out of the film, but Alan Parker, the British director, said he said, there's two kinds of films. There's the films you saw as a kid and the films when you saw when you were growing up and prejudice. Always take recourse to the films you saw as a kid. <laughs> That's my other advice. Because when you watch them, you don't care it's Charles Bronson shooting somebody. You just love it. Stick to them because because that pure emotion is what you're trying to capture. No matter what you're doing later on, you you, you don't you don't have that prejudice. What would Jack say to people? He said he, he have lots of references. You know, um, his parents were vaudevillian um, performers. He went to hundreds of schools. Literally, I'm not making that up. He went to about every week. He went to a different school. So he came to painting and art. Um, instinctively going to galleries and Jack just said have very broad references learn as much as you can you know have a very open mind and and be very enthusiastic because you don't need to lecture you need to inspire people Kirk Douglas says Jack had the eyes of a child he had the eyes of Chagall you know they were very bright and um, you want to always have that look in your eyes as a filmmaker you want to be curious well, Craig, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Um, I can tell our audience members that your film is really great. I really got so much out of it. It was really inspiring. If anybody wants to see Cameraman, The Life and Work of Jack Cardiff, it's now out on DVD, Blu-ray. It's streaming on Netflix and coming soon to what network? It's coming soon on iTunes and Amazon uh, Video on Demand and Digital Download. And from January 2012... Turner Classic Movies will be running it on two or three of their their um, dedicated channels. So I can't offer it on more formats or more platforms. <laughs> and, and I'm really pleased it's on Blu-ray. And I really thank Strand, my North American distributor, for doing that because to me that's just the icing on the cake that getting all those clips. So if you can afford a few extra bucks, go for it. It, it is worth it. Yeah, and I also want to tell our listeners, too, if, if they are Netflix members, you can also watch Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes, two of Jack's greatest works on Netflix currently. I need to just nod to one other organization, sure. the Criterion uh, label, who has spent years and years restoring and working on a lot of the Powell Pressburger films. And I actually made a, a short offshoot film of my documentary called Painting with Light. So if you get the Criterion DVD or Blu-ray, The Black Narcissus, it has much more extended pieces from Scorsese and Jack just about Black Narcissus and nothing else. And I made that while I was editing the main film. And I, I think they've done stuff. There's loads of great labels in the States, but Criterion were the, one of the inspirations to me to stick stick to its kind of technical standards. So the red shoes and black narcissus on Criterion is, is, I don't think you can get better. Craig, thanks again. All right, Sean. The Camera Report is produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. For more information on our show or news about upcoming guests, please search for Waterfoot Films on Facebook and like us to see the updates. Or visit our website 
at www.waterfootfilms.com. I'm Sean Malone, and thanks again for listening.